and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. If you are name-checked in the Hebrews 11 Faith Hall of Fame, you must be pretty incredible, right? Or were they more like us than we think? Teaching team member Caleb Click starts the new series, Gideon and the God of Grace, with this sermon entitled Strength for Strugglers, which covers Judges chapters 6 and 7. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, church. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Judges, chapter 6, verses 11 through 27. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day, it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiezrites. That night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Read with me our prayer of illumination this morning. O God who gives generously to those who ask, We ask that you would give us understanding, that we may keep your word. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things 
and instead give us life in your ways. Confirm to us your promise in Christ that we may love and worship you in spirit and in truth. Amen. Gracious Father, I ask this morning, Lord, as, as one who is tired and who feels his weakness, would you use my weakness to display your strength? Would you show us the beauty of Jesus? And would we leave this place, not in our own power or strength, but resting instead in his? Do this in his name. Amen. Uh, earlier this year, my wife Mallory and I, we, we decided that this was going to be the summer that our twins, Lucy and Alice, took a big step forward. Uh, our twins, if you don't know it, they are five years old, and last summer we had them go through swim lessons. They, they took the classes, they learned some of the strokes, they kind of ventured away from their floaties just, just a little bit, but they never quite got over their feel that they needed that security blanket when they were in the water. And so we thought, this summer, they're five, their older sister's swimming like this, this is the moment when we're gonna cast aside the floaties, they're gonna swim like the big girls that they are, and so we created a plan. We were gonna bring them to my mother-in-law's pool, we were going, I was gonna take them one at a time in my arms, I was gonna wade out into a place where their feet didn't touch the ground, and then I was just gonna let go. Take a few steps back, and say, swim to me, and if they started to sink, I would run forward and pick them up and set them back on the side, but if they, they made it, I would coax them to go a little further and a little further, and we would help them slowly but surely get over their fear. And so, this is what we did. We told the twins the plan, Alice volunteered as tribute, and I took her out in the middle of the pool. I've got her in my arms, she's confident, she's ready, but every step that I took towards the center of that pool, I could feel the confidence just draining from her body. Her hands are gripping my forearms tighter and tighter. Her body's tensing up. Her eyes are just getting bigger and bigger and they're dashing around at everything around her. She's breathing rapidly. And so I leaned into my little girl and I said, Alice, do you know that I love you? And Alice said, I know that you love me. She nodded her head. I said, do you know that your dad would never let anything bad happen to you? That if you begin to slip under the water even a bit, I will grab you and I will pull you to safety. And Alice nodded her head. I said, do you know? Do you know that I am going to be here in the water so that I will be here in a moment if the slightest thing goes wrong. She nodded her head. I said, okay, then do you trust me? And sweet, precious Alice, love of my life, <laughs> looked me in the eye and said as loudly and clearly as she could, no. <laughs> She knew who I was. She knew that I cared for her. She heard from my lips this promise, my dad is going to rescue me if anything goes wrong. She had experienced, at least to some degree, my faithfulness in the past. I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. And yet when push came to shove, when the moment of decision came, my little girl, she did not trust me because in her heart of hearts there was something that she was afraid I would not provide 
That's Israel in Judges 6. They know the Lord. They've experienced his mercy and his goodness. God has delivered them and their fathers from slavery in Egypt. He's brought plagues against the Egyptians. He's parted seas. He's brought them through the wilderness. He's fed them when there was nothing to feed them with. He's given them water when there was no water to drink. He has brought them into the promised land. He's brought down the walls of Jericho. He's driven out their enemies before them. Everything God has promised to be and to do for them, God has shown himself to be and God has done. And God has come to Israel and said, I have brought you into the land. You are my people. I am your God. Give me your hearts. And Israel said to God, Alice said to me, we don't trust you. There are things we are afraid you will not give us. Things we think we need. Things that we love more than the God who loved and saved us. And so the one thing God commanded them not to do, to worship the idols of the land, Israel does. And all through the book of Judges, you see this cycle. Israel bows down to idols and does what is evil in God's sight. God does exactly what he promised he would do. He sends disaster upon them. Their enemies rise up. Israel becomes oppressed. They begin to be distressed and be in pain and to suffer. They cry for help. God in his mercy, he delivers them. And in Judges 6, that cycle, it's happening yet again. Israel has done what is evil in the Lord's sight. They've bowed down to idols and God has raised up this people called the Midianites. There are so many of them in the land that the text describes them as a horde of locusts. They are stealing all of the Israelites' food. They are taking their livestock and they are so oppressing the people of God that Israel has been reduced, not to living in their homes or in their cities, but in caves like animals. And after seven years, seven years of enduring this, Seven years of pain and suffering and sorrow because of choices they are making. Israel finally wakes up and goes, maybe we should call on the God who saves again. So Israel cries. And God, as he always does, God answers. And you see Israel's sin in yet a deeper way still. God sends a prophet. And through the prophet, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. And I warned you not to bow down to the idols of the land. But verse 10, you have not obeyed my voice. God puts his finger on the sin that is the cause of all of their distress. And he calls them to repentance. And notice what happens next. Nothing. Israel doesn't confess their sins. Israel doesn't destroy their idols. Israel doesn't burn down the altars to Baal and to Asherah. Israel just sits silently because despite all that God has done, despite everything that they know about him, when push comes to shove, Israel still doesn't trust him. And it's easy it's easy to read through Judges and texts like this and look at Israel and think, how, how stupid and stubborn could you be? I mean, as you go through Judges, they just get worse and worse and worse and worse. 
But if we're honest about our hearts, if we're honest about our lives, we have to confess we're not all that different, are we? Because while many of us here in this room, we confess to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we know this God who saves sinners and we are sinners that he has saved, the faith we possess, it's a fickle faith, isn't it? We say we believe in the God who saves sinners. But what happens when someone confronts us with real sin that we've committed? We say we believe in the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who will provide for us every single thing that we require. But what happens in our hearts when we begin to hear whispers that there is yet another recession on the horizon? We say that in Christ there is life and there is life abundant, life better than anything that this world has to offer, but what happens? What happens when God's commands get in the way of our desires? We say Jesus is all that we need, that he's sufficient. But what happens when God calls us to hard people and hard places into spots where all of our normal comforts are denied us? We struggle to trust him, don't we? And here, here's why I love the book of Judges so much. You have chapter after chapter of Israel's ever-deepening depravity of this people whose sin just seems to go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And yet in every chapter you find a grace of God that is deeper and deeper still. This God who keeps coming back to his sinful, broken, ungrateful people and saving them and redeeming them even from themselves. You know, this story, this isn't the story of Gideon. This is the story of the God of grace. This is a story of a God who saves sinners, of who works through human weakness, but who, as I want us to see primarily this morning, it is a God who strengthens strugglers. You see it all through Gideon's life. God calls this man to be the savior of Israel, not in his strength, but in God's. And Gideon, he is the least likely person God could call. You know, if you've ever seen the old westerns where you have a town that's being oppressed by dangers, there's always that one lone hero who shows up, who's brave where everyone else is cowardly, who is strong where everyone else is weak. You've got your Shane or your man with no name from the old spaghetti westerns, whoever it might be. And they come and they become the deliverer. And you would think that's the kind of person God would choose. But that's not Gideon. Gideon's not a faithful man among faithless people. He's not a righteous man among unrighteous people. He's not a brave man among cowardly people. Gideon is everything that's wrong with Israel. Israel is struggling with the worship of idols. What is Gideon doing when God comes to him in verse 11? He's working for his dad, who just so happens to own and operate what? A shrine to idols. Israel has heard the promises of God and yet refuses to believe them, refuses to respond to them. Gideon, when God first comes and says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor, what is Gideon's response? The Lord was with our fathers. 
He's not with us. He's not a believing man. He's an unbelieving one. And while Israel is hiding in caves, what is Gideon doing when we open up the text in verse 11? Gideon is hiding in a wine press. He's threshing wheat in a wine press. Why? Because he's scared. You know, I don't know how many of you are wheat threshers. Uh, there's probably not many of you. But there's one thing, just one, that is pretty vital if you want to really thresh wheat. Wind. If you throw the wheat into the air, the wind is what separates the good from the bad, the stuff you want to use from the stuff that is worthless. What don't you have in a wine press? Wind. Gideon, Gideon is like a man trying to chop down an oak tree with a butter knife when he needs a chainsaw. He is so afraid, so frightened of the Midianites that he would rather engage in an exercise in futility than possibly expose himself to their attack. When God comes to him and calls him a mighty man of valor, that's irony. You know, if God was not kind, you would almost think he's mocking Gideon. Gideon's a coward. This would be like calling me the Michael Jordan of basketball. That's something I absolutely am not. I can't even run or jump for that matter. And everything that follows, everything we see, it just makes the situation that much worse. In verse 14, Gideon has told God he does not believe that he is with him. And so God responds, verse 14, go in this might of yours, irony again, and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you, Gideon, you are weak and small and you have nothing in you, but I am the one who is sending you. I am the one who will save. I am the one who will do this. And what does Gideon say in response? Verse 15, how? How can I save Israel? It's like he doesn't even hear what God's saying. Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I am least in my father's house. I am too weak and too small. There is no way you could do that through me. And God comes back and says, Gideon, I don't think you're listening to me. Verse 16, I am with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. You will be the means through which I deliver my people. And the reason is this. It's not your strength. It's not your power. It's mine. The same God who you acknowledged was with your fathers and brought them out of slavery in Egypt, he is with you to save them from the hand of the Midianites now. I'm with you. And Gideon, Gideon basically in the next verses says, prove it. I need a sign. I need evidence that you are really who you say you are and you will really do what you say you are going to do. And God, God does just that. He sends fire from heaven to consume this offering that Gideon has made. And the angel of the Lord who's been speaking to Gideon face to face vanishes in the smoke, which is usually a clue that this was not in person you were speaking to. My friends don't just vanish in the smoke. And Gideon wakes up. And suddenly the man who was afraid of the Midianites, now he's afraid of something else. He's afraid of God. 
because he realizes that he, a sinful man, has been standing in the presence of a holy God. And there is no one who can see the face of God and live. And notice what God does in the midst of his fear. God proclaims his peace. Verse 23, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. He comes to Gideon in the midst of his fear, even as he comes to us in the midst of his sin. And he says, as Jesus himself says in John 3, I have come near to you not to condemn you, not to destroy you, but to save. And suddenly, you begin to see the first glimmers of what looks like faith in Gideon. This man hiding in a wine press, he starts to move. But it's a faith, it's a faith marked by fear. God calls him to go and to destroy his father's altars, to tear down the Baals and the Asherahs. And Gideon, in the first step of anything that looks like repentance in all of Israel, Gideon does it. He's moving, he is acting. But notice what it says in verse 27. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, but because he was too, what? Afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. He's come out of the wine press but he's still hiding in the dark, isn't he? Gideon, Gideon's a man who's beginning to trust, but it is a trust that is characterized by struggle. He's like the man who came to Jesus in Mark 9 saying, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. One of my favorite books is this little book by Richard Sibbs called The Bruised Reed. And I love this book. I've mentioned it probably in more sermons than I can count, so you're probably bored of me talking about it, but I genuinely adore this book because it's this little book that Sibs wrote to Christians who are struggling to believe that God really loves them, that God has really saved them, and who are questioning whether they have any assurance that they are his. And what Sibs says in that book is this. When God saves someone, He plants in their heart this seed of grace that grows not quickly, but slowly. He doesn't grow us like weeds. He grows us like oaks, slowly and over time, bit by bit, day by day, decade after decade until we are with him in glory. And while we as believers are in this life, as those who've been justified in Christ, saved by him apart from any work of our own, but are still waiting for the day when Jesus will return and make us whole, where everything will be made right. He says, in this life, there are these two conflicting principles always at work in the heart of every believing Christian. There is on the one hand, the fire of God's grace. This little ember or spark that feels as though at any moment it is in danger of being snuffed out. This thing that sometimes feels so small, you wonder if it is there at all. And then on the other, there is the smoke of sin and corruption. This billowing cloud pouring forth from our lives that stings our eyes and our nostrils, and it sometimes makes us question if there is any grace at all. 
But Sib says this, if there is smoke, that means there has to be fire, which means the grace of God, it is at work in your heart and you are his. You see that fire and smoke in Gideon. God calls Gideon to tear down his father's idols. Gideon goes and he does it, there's fire. But Gideon, Gideon goes at night because he's afraid. There's smoke. God calls Gideon to gather together the Israelites, to bring them all together, 32,000 of them. He clothes Gideon with his spirit because he knows Gideon is not strong enough for this. He needs the empowerment of God. And Gideon calls the thousands together, 32,000 people surround Gideon as he's preparing to go to war with the Midianites. There's fire, there's reality, faith. But then what does Gideon do? He does this thing that if you grew up in church and you saw the old flannel graphs, you probably experienced this ad nauseum. He asks God for proof. It's the second time in the text. God shows up in his presence in the form of an angel and says, I'm with you, and Gideon says, prove it. God clothes him with his spirit, says, call together the people. Gideon does it. But before he goes to battle, what does he do? Verses 36 to 40, prove it again. How will I know? If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying down a fleece. And he asks these two things. He says, first, God, I want you to take this fleece and I want it to be wet while the ground is dry. And God does it. And then Gideon realizes that was a stupid request because of course the fleece is gonna be wet in the morning and the ground dry because the fleece soaks up the water. So he asks a second time. This time, let the fleece be dry and the ground wet and God does it. There's smoke. In the beginning of, verse seven, of chapter seven, God comes to Gideon, who has 32,000 people preparing to go to war. And God says, Gideon, I want you to do something. This is really important. I want you to send them away. Verse two, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my hand has saved me. He says, Gideon, I need you to strip down this army to such a degree that when victory comes, and it is coming, Israel will have no choice but to say it was the Lord who did this and not us. And Gideon, the man who hid in the wine press, Gideon does it. He whittles down that army from 32,000 to 300 men armed not with swords, but with torches and trumpets, and that's it. That's fire. If you want to know why he is in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, that's the reason right there. He is trusting the word of the Lord. But notice what it also says in verse 10. On that very same night, God comes to Gideon. Why? Gideon, verse 10, is afraid. There's smoke. He's changing but it's slow. There's transformation happening, but it is bit by bit and by degrees. And while the fire of grace, it is burning ever more brightly, always it is mixed with the smoke of sin and corruption. But here is the key point. Change 
is happening. And where is that change coming from? It's not Gideon. It's God. At every point where Gideon fears, at every point where Gideon is weak, God keeps meeting him in the midst of his fear and at the point of his weakness and proving himself to be the savior he needs and the savior that he has. Gideon, Gideon's afraid of tearing down his father's idols because notice he's afraid of who? His family, probably mostly his dad. Because if you own and operate a shrine to idols, that means that is a source of family income. Who does God raise up to defend Gideon after he tears down the idol? The very person of whom Gideon is most afraid, his father. When Gideon comes to the Lord and asks him for the fleeces, he asked him to prove it yet again. He knows. He knows what he's asking. This is not something that he should be asking. This is not a request that he should be making, especially not twice. Uh, you see this in verse 39. The second time he makes a request about the fleece, look what he says. Let, me not, let not your anger burn against me, meaning I know that what I'm about to do, you have a right to be angry about. You could rebuke me. You could walk away from me. Please don't be angry with me. Listen just this one more time. Please let me, and here is a word that if you are an Israelite, it should send off alarm bells because it is something in Deuteronomy 6, God has told his people explicitly, clearly, you are never, ever, ever, ever to do this. He tests God. He says, please, let me test just once more with the fleece. And yet, what do you see from God? He could rebuke him. He could burn with anger and he could destroy Gideon right there. He could say, you know what, I'm going with somebody else. You had your chance, I'm done. What do you see from God instead? No rebuke, no anger. It simply says in verse 40, and God did so. That's grace. But there's something more beautiful still. Gideon sends away the people in chapter 7. He's down to the 300 and he's preparing for battle. And notice this time, Gideon doesn't make any requests for proof, he doesn't ask for signs. He is sitting there and waiting for the moment to come. But notice the beauty and the tenderness of God's heart. Gideon doesn't ask for assurance. But God is so aware of the needs of Gideon's heart, he knows that Gideon needs assurance. And God gives it. Look at verse 9. That same night, night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, which I think is another mercy, because Gideon would probably be too scared to go on his own. 
and you shall hear what they, the Midianites, say. And afterwards your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Gideon goes, which tells you what? He's afraid. He goes with Pura, smart move. And as he's sitting outside one of the Midianites' tents, he hears one of the Midianites relay this dream. It's a weird dream. There's a loaf of barley rolling down a hill, and that loaf of barley, it knocks over the tents of the Midianites. And in verse 14, one of the other Midianites hearing this dream says this in the hearing of Gideon. Verse 14, this, the loaf, is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. What God has already promised to do, what God has assured him over and over and over again would surely happen. God, now through the mouth of an enemy, he gives Gideon the assurance that he needs. It is almost as though you were staring at the evil one and he is saying, Christ has defeated me, it is finished, and there's nothing that I can do. And Gideon, for the very first time, Almost two chapters into his story, Gideon does something you have not seen him do once before this. Verse 15, he worshiped. The man who worshiped idols, he begins to worship the Lord, and the man who was hiding in the winepress, he becomes, he becomes the mighty man of valor. He goes at the head of the people and he brings that 300 against the thousands and tens of thousands of the Midianites. And through him, God delivers his people. What happened? God did. Do not miss what is taking place in this text. God is taking this man and what he declared him to be, what he called him to be, that is what God in his mercy and in his grace made him to be. He took a man who had no faith and he gave him faith. And then he took that little ember, that little flame, and he stoked it, and he nourished it, and he sustained it until the man that God called him and intended Gideon to become, that is what he was. He strengthened the struggler as only God can. And if you are like me, that is good news. Because Gideon and Israel, they are not the only ones who struggle to trust the Lord. They're not the only ones who struggle to lay down their idols of comfort and money and politics or whatever it might be. We have a God who has come to us to save in the same way he did to Gideon. He has called us out of darkness and into his light. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, in his great mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. In the midst of our sin, he has proclaimed to us his peace, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has said to those who are following idols, pick up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Give me your heart, give me your life. He has called us who once walked in darkness to walk in light, to reflect the sun in the midst of this dark and this broken world, in the places where God has called us. And yet, 
Though God has done all of this and made all of these promises, if you look at your life, the pattern of it looks a lot less like Jesus's and a lot more like Gideon's, doesn't it? Fire and smoke. I see it in my own life. You know, when I was at the end of my freshman year in college, I, I was running from Jesus as hard as I possibly could. I, I did not want anything to do with him. I wanted to escape it. I had grown up in the church and I just didn't really want much more to do with it. And God in his kindness, he ran towards me when I was running from him. To, to steal Augustine's language, he pierced my heart with Christ's love. And he took this kid who doubted that anyone could ever love him, let alone God. And he opened my eyes to a God who loves and saves sinners and it overwhelmed me. And the trajectory of my life, it changed radically. I went from partying to going, this is not what the Lord has called me to, it doesn't honor him and so I left it. I had a girl that I was dating, a really sweet girl, but I knew our relationship was, wasn't healthy so I broke up with her. I started going to church again, which may not sound like much, but it was a lot for me. And every morning I found myself opening up these scriptures that I had thought were boring all of my life. And though I didn't understand half of what I was reading, I found I couldn't put it down that there was someone speaking to me through them. But while the trajectory of my life changed radically, it didn't change perfectly. And it's really easy, it's really easy for me to get up here on a Sunday morning and to put on a garb and a mask and to present myself as something better than I am. But if you were to walk closely with me, you'd see a man who still struggles with pride, who struggles to trust, who wrestles with bitterness and anger and anxiety and fear someone who was far too slow to listen to other people and far too quick to share his own opinions. And there is, on my life, even as there is on yours, this call to follow Jesus. And it is a call that I sometimes struggle to follow. He's called me to be a pastor and part of that means wading into really hard and difficult things with people. And I'll be frank with you, that terrifies me. He's called me to preach. Which you may not be able to tell this. That terrifies me every time I do it. My preparation to preach is a lot of me going, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Do something through me because I don't see how you could possibly use me. I look at myself and everywhere I see my own inadequacy and yet here is the beauty and the hope of the gospel. The hope that we have. The hope we see presented in Judges 6 to 7. The hope we see perfectly in Jesus. It is that our confidence, our future, it doesn't depend on our perfect faith or our perfect trust. It depends upon our perfect Savior. And the God, 
The God who declared Gideon to be something he was not and then made him that, that is what he is doing in us through Christ Jesus. Has he called you righteous in Christ? Then though your life be ever so full of the smoke of sin, that is what God will one day make you to be on the day of Jesus' return. Has he called you his child, beloved and precious in his sight? Then though the world may not recognize you as such, and though you yourself may doubt that that's what you are, God in Christ says that is exactly what you are right now. And you will one day be revealed to be that in full on the day you see Jesus face to face. Has God called you to be a light in the midst of the darkness? In the midst of your family, in your neighborhood, in your community, in your office, wherever it is that God has placed you. Then though you feel weak and inadequate to the task, and in fact are inadequate to the task, the same God who clothed Gideon with his spirit. He has clothed us with his spirit in an even deeper way still. So that what he intends us to be in this world, in the midst of all the trial and tribulation, we would truly be now. And here, here's what should make our hearts sing. There are going to be moments when the smoke of sin is so strong, you are going to wonder if God's grace lives in you at all. There's going to be moments when you are going to look at what God has called you to do and it is going to seem so big that it is insurmountable. Moments when you, just like Gideon, you need God to assure your struggling heart. And God... It's God of grace. He's given you something better than dreams or fire or fleeces. He's given you Jesus. Hebrews 1, 1 to 2. It says, long ago at many times and in many ways, think dreams, fire, and fleeces. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Do you struggle to trust that God could save someone like you? Then look. Look to the one, 1 Timothy 1 says, came into this world for only one reason, to save sinners, even the very worst. Do you struggle to trust that God is with you and that he cares for you? Look to the one who left his father's side and entered space and time and history and took on human flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us. The one in whom the love of God is now made manifest before our eyes who shows us his love in this and that while we were still sinners, not after we repented, but when we were as broken and dead as Gideon and Israel were, he died for us. Do you struggle to trust that God will give you everything that you need? 
look to the one who is so generous that he did not spare from you the one thing that was more precious than any other, his son. And ask yourself, if God would give up his son for me, if that is the measure of my worth in God's eyes, what could possibly make me think he will not give me what I require here and now? Do you struggle to trust that God is gonna save to the uttermost because you look at the world and you see its brokenness. You look at yourself and you see your sin. You look at the power of the evil one in this present darkness and you think, how is God ever going to redeem this? Look to the one who didn't just die for your sins but was raised for them, who is sitting before the Father right now, interceding on our behalf, who has said to you, where I am, there you will also be. The one who is one day going to come and judge the living and the dead. And when he does, on that day, there will be no more smoke. There will just be the fire of grace in people who have now become the oaks of righteousness that he has called and created and redeemed us to be. Not through our power, not through our strength, but his. We were strugglers. But we have a God who strengthens strugglers, who says our hope, it is not in our perfect faith or trust, it is in the perfect Savior. And though your life be ever so full of that awful blend of fire and smoke, this God, he has promised that the work he has begun, it is a work that he, unlike you and I, it is a work that he will bring to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He did it in Gideon. He has promised, he has promised to do it in you and I. May we come to him. May we see and behold his glory. May we give him our hearts and our lives, our struggles and our fears because there is in Jesus a savior who is sufficient for everyone. Amen. Gracious Father, we are so thankful for a God whose love is deeper than our sin, whose grace, Lord, reaches down into the very depths and reveals itself in his son. And we pray, Lord, would you take our, our hardened hearts and our blind eyes, would you break down the hardness, would you give us sight where we are blind, would you show us Jesus? And would you take us as your people, would you make us to be what you have declared us to be in Christ? And would you take those who are in this room, Lord, who maybe, maybe they are like getting in the wine press where, Lord, there is no faith at all. There is only unbelief and brokenness and terror. And Lord, I pray, would you take the word of your peace and would you call them out of darkness into light? Would you do this in Jesus' name? Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.